Hi, Smart Community Friends. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. And welcome to the summer series here on the Smart Community Podcast. As you know, we're taking a little break from new content over the Australian summer holidays. And instead, we are sharing with you the replays of a few of our all-time favourite episodes. This week, we're sharing my interview with Katie Patrick from way back in episode 234, which was released in June of 2021. Katie is an environmental engineer, software designer, author, and co-founder of two environmental database startups, Energy Lollipop and Urban Canopy. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, we begin our conversation by Katie telling us what her background is as an environmental engineer, how she transitioned to running her own publishing company to now her own startups. Katie then shares with us what a smart community means to her and her passion for environmental data. We then talk about environmental data and how it can help drive change in human behavior before Katie talks about her interest in behavioral psychology. Katie then shares with us her two startups and the work that they are involved in, and we talk about her transition from a more conventional style of work to the startup space before discussing personality types and the value different personalities can bring to an organization. We talk about the basis of Katie's book, How to Save the World, and how important it was for Katie to deliver her complex messages in the book in a readable way to her audience. We finish our conversation discussing the emerging trends of granular data and data-to-data comparisons. One recent project of Katie's that has happened since this interview is the Sustainability Street Masterclass that she has been running which is about how to gamify neighbourhood decarbonisation. We'll pop the link in the show notes if you want to check that out. And of course, we'll be sure to get Katie back on the show in the new year for a full update about what she's been up to since we recorded this episode and how our thinking has progressed since this conversation. But in the meantime, as always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Katie. How are you today? Hi, I'm good, thank you. I'm over on the other side of the world in San Francisco. Yes, I'm very excited to have this conversation across the ocean. So let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Ah, My background is I am an environmental engineer, which I just found out that you are as well. So he's here for our um, earth engineer people. So I grew up in the Mornington Peninsula in Melbourne, and I figured I'm talking to an Australian, so that might actually be meaningful for some people listening. Always cared about the environment, went into environmental engineering, worked as a green building engineer, and then I started a publishing company called Green Pages, which some people might remember, the magazines and publications that are out in the, in the 2000s, and have been working on environmental data-based uh, technology in Silicon Valley since then. Yeah, wow. And um, so you're obviously very passionate and you're, I mean, I don't even know if I like the term passionate anymore, but I think I'm still using it. But the purpose of why you do what you do is the environmental side of things, right? 
I mean, yeah, primarily I've always cared deeply about nature. I mean, it's also my job and my profession. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if really passion was really where it came from. It came from being very disturbed about what was happening to the planet, you know, as a child. Like there were on news every night there was the whales being shot with harpoons and you'd see trees being cut down and this was very upsetting to me. So it originated from this concern about really wanting to do something and being quite outraged about what was going on in, on the planet. But then over the years, it becomes something more substantial than that. It's a really big intellectual period of mastery. Like this is such a complex and fascinating topic to work on and it goes far beyond the scope of passion. It's kind of like this great chess game of all these pieces and it's really quite tantalising when you get into the complexity of it. And I think that's what makes it fun and makes it what's, what it's such an exciting profession to be a part of. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I think putting it like that, it's more than a passion. And I think that's a lot of the the work that, you know, I get involved with as well. It's like people ask me why I'm in the space and, you know, I used to use the word passion quite a lot, but you're right, it, it goes beyond that and further than that. So, yeah, thanks so much for sharing. We're going to jump into, we're going to go high level and then I want to jump straight into tell us about your business, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to go smart communities. So what is a smart community to you? Oh, well, I don't really use the word smart community, so I don't too much think about it in that term. But what I am really interested in is getting good quality environmental data, which is, I suppose, you know, what it means to be like a, a smart city. And so what has really obsessed me, let's say not passion, obsession, intellectual obsession, is trying to figure out how to get real-time data feeds of environmental impact and show them to people kind of like a Fitbit for the planet. That's the phrase I use to describe it. Can you get data and you, can you show it to people in a way that's going to give them agency to take action? So if I go and take a shower, I really have no idea how many litres of water I use in my shower. I have no idea how much you know kilowatt hours of electricity my apartment is using now. Um, I mean, most people, you really wouldn't even know how many litres of petrol your car has used. I mean, this is all this data is completely invisible to us as individuals and also as cities and as governments. It's not that good either, right? So if I was to see all these numbers the same way I would see a Fitbit in my, you know, on my wrist, then that could enable me to do better in the design of that to do better. And we still need to have a lot of work to do on that data. It's not anywhere near as good as it should be or it could be. And that's what I work on, which is an important kind of circulatory system of the whole smart cities uh, kind of concept. I mean, I don't work on the human side of data that much. It's very much just about environmental impact. But we need a whole lot, a whole lot more data. And when we have the data, we can really use it to drive action in a way that it can be really hard to get people to do stuff and take action if you don't have these data tools. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like what you said there about if we like this invisible data that, you know, I totally, I think about this all the time, like oh, how much am I actually using when I'm doing ABC? Is this choice better than this choice? And you, you're basing that choice on whatever data you have available at the time, whether there's anything or whether it's just, you know, even just, it's not real data, right? It's just a thing that you thought that somebody told you one time that it was better to do that than that because of whatever reason. So I, I think that making that invisible data visible to people because then it shifts behavior right and I find it interesting that you say you don't work on the human side of things but because when I was kind of flicking through your book it was it's very much about behavior change but I guess what you mean is you're working on 
the pulling that data in so then you can make it available to the humans rather than, I don't know, like rather than thinking more about, well, what does this mean for humans? But it's like that environmental side then feeding into what humans can then do with it. Oh, yeah, it's very much about humans in terms of human behaviour. Um, but what I meant by saying that was I don't so much focus on like social ills. Like I don't look at the um, data around like the elderly or around like blind people or disabled people. So there's a lot of data also around like human health and social issues and poverty and that kind of thing. That's just not kind of what. And so there's a whole lot of like smart city orientated technology around supporting people in that sort of human dimension. I only look at it in terms of how does it help the earth, how the humans kind of interact with with environmental impact. Yeah, but it is entirely about driving uh, behaviour. And in, you know, 20 years of working in sustainability, it's the human behaviour thing that just like falls off everybody's radar when ultimately that's what it's all about. If There's so many scientific reports and studies and really advanced technology stuff that gets done. And, you know, like if it doesn't actually get humans to do a thing, it's kind of fails. So uh, there's very few people working on the environmental behavioural psychology design of things. And I think that's a tragedy. And I'm kind of bummed that it took me 15 years working in this profession and go to all the conferences and really being a part of everything before I worked it out. You know, like we didn't learn about it at school. It wasn't in the vernacular. Like it's a kind of a very nascent movement. And I, I don't think it shouldn't be. I think it should be the first time you start learning about sustainability you want to get on top of what you know environmental behavior design is about mm-hmm. okay well let's talk a little bit more about you and tell us about your company or companies that you're working on at the moment and tell us what they do well i'm working on two startups so they are small and nascent don't want to oversell them that is a big corporation with hundreds of people but one of them is called Energy Lollipop, and it's this whole idea of Fitbit for the planet. Let's show people the data, and then the data can be designed in a way that gives people agency to change rather than it just being some, like, random top green tips, you know, that someone tells you, like you mentioned. And we have a Chrome extension that you can download uh, if you just type in Energy Lollipop Chrome, and it shows you in real time the carbon emissions of the grid. Now it just has California at the moment. And a lot of people here listening won't be in California, but still download it anyway, because it's really interesting to see how the California grid operates in that its carbon emissions go up during breakfast time when people are all getting up, but then it goes right down because there's a a lot of solar installed in California. Actually so much solar that there's too much solar power on most days and they have to actually shut it off. And then in the evening it goes right up again. And so then and then have a look at the Australian data so it's not in our extension yet but you can find it in other ways and unfortunately Australia is not anywhere close to California's solar so I think it would be good to compare them that's a gamification tactic we can do with data we can actually be like you know what the climate in California is kind of similar to Australia there's really no reason why we shouldn't have all the solar power that you know back in Australia that California has and then we also made another Chrome extension an app that then goes even deeper using your own like smart meter data of your own kilowatt hours to show you the carbon dioxide of your own home. And that was really interesting, adding the color and gamification techniques like, you know, badges and leaderboards and social comparison. We were getting up to 70% of CO2 reduction in a home just by people doing behavioral changes, small appliance changes and stuff like that. And uh, we also have an outdoor light. So it would be like out on the street. So we're getting the first one arriving 
from the manufacturer in a few weeks. We'll be really excited to see that. So you could see like your whole town's CO2 emissions in real time out in a big uh, light, which is it's going to be really fun to see that come out. And um, the other one is called Urban Canopy, which takes uh, satellite imagery during the peak of summer when cities get really hot and maps it out so you can see, get a high resolution map of surface temperature. And nobody's really been putting data out that. It's been quite recent, only recently when the technology has been available to get temperature photographed from space. And it's currently like very in a very difficult to access way on NASA's website. But if you treat the data properly, if you're nice to the data, treat it nicely, polite, draw it out, put it through some processes, you can make it look quite beautiful and make it in a public web format that's easy to access. So that's what Urban Canopy is doing. Yeah, nice. I was just uh, downloading the extension and yes, it's very easy to do. I just did it right then and I can see. One click and you got it. Yeah. And other than I had to sign in to my own thing because I wasn't signed in. But yeah, pretty much one click and now I can see California's grid, which is, yeah, super interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that. Both of those sound really fascinating and I think really uh, valuable tools for both individuals and at that government level, like you said earlier, having the Fitbit for the planet. So, you know, maybe I can make a better decision, but also then that data can be available to governments and authorities and people that are responsible for making these maybe small decisions, but actually have a really, really big impact on emissions and and those type of things as well. So you've been doing this for, you know, maybe you've been an environmental engineer for 15 years, you said, and then you've kind of shifted into this more data space and startup space now. How did you find that transition moving from more traditional, potentially uh, engineering side of things into the startup space? Well, it's a bit of a long story. I mean, I mean, the last job I had as a legit environmental engineer was when I was, what, 24 years old. So that was like 16 years ago. Well, I actually kind of got fired from that job because I was really unhappy. It was a great company. They said it wasn't the problem with the work. It was just basically a problem with me because I kept crying at work. I was just really so unhappy doing that kind of green building work. It was really boring for me. And um, I'm like an intensely creative, intellectually curious person. If I'm not just constantly feeding like Cookie Monster on like creative ideas and learning things like I go to parties and I read academic reports in the corner I'm like talk to everyone I'm like hi everybody okay gotta go and read my paper now you know anyway that goes down in Silicon Valley that's quite a normal thing to do in Silicon Valley people just go to parties and they all just sit there and write code next to each other but so conventional environmental engineering just wasn't a personality fit for me just doing that type of work so then I started my own media company Green Pages and that was very thrilling and it was quite successful at the time And it did well for quite a few years. So anyway, that was that transition that was kind of somewhat forced upon me by the world. It wasn't really like my decision. And I had a really wonderful run with the publishing company for a while. But then in 2010, you know, we had a recession and the whole media landscape was changing. And so that didn't really, it just, it sort of came to its end. And then I, um, I didn't want to do it anymore anyway. And so I moved to Silicon Valley to do a more intense, like technical, technical work. And so the shift from running a a publishing company to trying to make it in Silicon Valley, I mean, that was really, really challenging. I mean, I spent, came from a very successful place in Australia where I was, you know, regularly in the news and radio and I had 20 full-time staff and I had venture capital funding and I lived in Surrey Hills in a cool house in Crown Street, you know, beautiful neighborhood, going to the beach, really well connected in Australia. 
to having to really start all over again in Silicon Valley, start right at the bottom, you know, and nobody cares who you were back wherever you came from, you know. People care if you went to Harvard and if you, you know, sold your company to Google and if you're friends with Elon Musk. And I really had no social traction at all, you know, and I wasn't like 20 something anymore. I was 30 something. So I was kind of old in the Silicon Valley kind of scheme of, you know, young people startups. And it took a really long time. You know, it was it was really difficult for me. I had to almost like completely reinvent myself and start kind of start from primary principles again about, you know, what I was really motivated about, what I really cared about what I wanted to do with my life and uh, sort of start from scratch and sort of build up this whole new body of knowledge, which, which I did. And I just sort of nutted away at it for years until it kind of started to work out. It was a bit left field question, but I'm so interested because I was also like a traditional, I was civil and environmental engineer. And then, you know, shifting into, I guess, a more agile space, more, you know, startup tech, et cetera space. And yeah, I, I also had it nearly kind of forced on me. Well, I guess I I set up the environment that it has to be forced on me, if that makes sense. I like, you know, manifested it to be that I had to I had to make a decision because I started the podcast and I couldn't be a public servant at the same time as having a podcast. And so that was the decision to be made. Okay, I'm going out on my own. And it's yeah, it's not that I had a terrible time or a terrible job. It was a great job, but it was yeah, just moving into something a bit bigger and better and I like the. I was also very uh, always an intensely curious person and creative person as well, and so yeah, I can definitely definitely relate to yeah, like a cookie monster situation where I'm just like, I need more information, bring it, bring it here. Like you know, people think I'm a bit crazy for studying a master's of data science full time as well as doing everything else, but I think I find it very hard to just sit and do nothing rather than well. I should spend this time just feeding my brain. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk back to you. Tell us about your book, How to Save the World. Oh, um, but I I just wanted to respond to what you were just saying, you know, like I think that, you know, it's a real shame that conventional employment doesn't really cater for creativity. You know, they say that they want, oh, we want innovation and we want creativity. But if you're the one that's kind of like, perhaps you're a little kookier than the normal person, but People have different brains, right? And some people are really good at being that structured nine to five person. And the person who might be a bit more creative might be a bit less good at that. But they also bring so much intelligence in a different sort of way to the table. Like you're able to take mental risks. You're able to come up with ideas that nobody can think of. You don't mind failing. You're like, cool, I'll work at something and I'll look dumb in front of everyone just to try an idea. I don't care. You know, you're able to think in such a different way. And it's just, it's a real shame that more conventional employment doesn't sort of account for that. You know, at Google, they have the 20%, you know, you work four days and the other 20%, you kind of do your own thing. I mean, I think all employers, government and industry, if they were a bit more flexible around different personality types and different creative types, you know, we could have all these different types of people feeding more innovation in instead of having to make these drastic choices that I have to be all Indian self-employed or a startup, or I have to like work the conventional, you know, nine to five and not express myself at all. I mean, it really shouldn't be that black and white. Mm, I think we'll see more of it too. And something not intentionally bring it back to smart communities, but in this space, it's like people ha- actually have to think differently because we need traditional organizations. We need startups. We need all these different people involved in the conversation. But first of all, we have to think that it's possible that we can have a different conversation like we were just talking about without making some drastic change that they can't, you know, be a public servant as well as do something else. And I think we'll see more and more of it because it'll be demanded particularly. And I don't even think it's, 
I don't want to say like younger generations coming through, but it will be a, the way we work is completely shifted. It'll be common for people to be doing more than one thing, but their, their time is dedicated for this job or whatever the case may be, this activity. So we'll have to learn how to do that better as well. I think both from an employee or contractor or staff member or whatever and the employer side. So I think like we've seen it a little bit with COVID, like that people have had to shift and change and do things a bit differently, but some of that stuff has to stick. Otherwise, yeah, we will end up with just, yeah, these kind of even like silos of creative people. But actually, if we were together in the same company, maybe we can have bigger and even better ideas. So I don't think it's not a one size fits all. Some people are going to do much better and they start up by themselves and then hire people, but other people as creative, but actually won't be working for somebody else and input into their company or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's a time to break out of the silo. All my conversations today has been a breaking out of the silo day. All my meetings have been anti-silo themed. Let's talk about your book, How to Save the World. Big title, bold title, love it. Yeah, it is a big title, but when I explain the title, it makes a, a bit more sense. So a few years ago, about seven years ago, I got really interested in this idea of using environmental data in a game-like sort of environment. Uh, the same way that you would get, you know, social media notifications, you get a little red dot, you get a ding. And I was like, maybe we could do something like that for like if you recycle or if you save energy, you know, that kind of thing. And I started to put it together and I was like, oh, let's just like, you got to get the data and then you've got to like show it in a feedback loop and then you've got to give somebody like a prize. You have to like reward them and then you have to kind of make it like a journey, you know, kind of like a movie or a game. And then people need to like get to the end. You need to like track that and then you win. Then you win at the game, you know. And so I put it into this PowerPoint presentation called How to Save the World in 10 Steps. And I was like, step one, you do this. Step two, you do this. Step three, you do this. And you could apply this kind of framework to any kind of social or environmental good kind of change, like how to bring in this sort of game-like thinking. And so I put together like the 10 steps. And then the nature of the why it's called like how to save the world instead of like what to save the world, when people are telling you like green tips and how to solve climate change and stuff, they're really t saying what you need to do. Like we need to put in, you know, like 100,000 megawatts of solar or we need to make this particular thing illegal or we need to stop logging. They're telling you what you need to do. Very few people are telling you how to do it. If I had to say to you, like, Zoe, can you please figure out how to get 2,000 homes in your suburb to put on solar power? You'd be like, okay, I've given you the what, the easy part, okay? And now you're like, how do I actually do that? How do I influence people? How do I communicate with them? How do I get all these different people to, like, understand my idea and want to do it and then not say no like there's just like so much and that's when you get into like the human psychology of how to influence people and there is a way a way to do it so in the how in my book it's very specifically about digging deeply into the academic research about what the human psychology of trying to influence people to do stuff so everybody working in environment has a what they're missing the how okay, how do you get everybody in? And it's a really big body of knowledge. Like how do you psychologically influence people to do the environmental stuff you want them to do? And so my book really dives into that. And uh, it's really the only one that does. I mean, there's only one other book that I found that really gets into environmental psychology and the other book doesn't go into the whole like data design part. So I wish there was more people out there writing and talking about this stuff. So hopefully I'll be able to like crack open, <laughs> crack open the the wall or whatever um, of this body of knowledge. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just, I love the diagrams and I love the way the book is set up because it it feels really friendly uh, as well as, you know, having some rich, deep information, you know, based on science and data, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to let you know that that I really enjoy oh, it. Oh, thanks. It is friendly. It's friendly and easy to read. <laughs> yep. It's definitely friendly. Like I I found the reason I started the podcast, right, is because I wanted an accessible, friendly way for people to just get involved because people go, oh, smart cities. Oh, I don't know what that is, tech data, whatever. Uh, I can't talk about that. But actually we need more people involved in combo. So, I mean, I also try to embody that friendliness. Hopefully I come across as friendly one of my deep insecurities about being a nice person. But yeah, just being accessible and being able to, okay, cool, I can do something with this, which is something that I think is really important and, and in the data space gets lost because we we get lost in the the tech and the the models and the statistics and all that type of stuff. But actually we want to shift people's perception of or not even perception, but just okay, well what can I what can I do with it? That's really great. You and I could nerd out on um, some kind of model or something like that, but then what do we want people to do with it is really, really important. Yeah, and even just like making something friendly, which is a nice nice way to, to say it, is like it's actually like a talent, like it's being a good communicator, like putting like a whole bunch of charts together on somebody and then writing in really academic language, using a whole bunch of abstractions, squishing all this information on the page. You might be like technical or whatever, but making something difficult to digest in the psychological literature, it's called cognitive load. Adding extra cognitive load basically directly reduces the amount of engagement. So my book isn't friendly just by accident. Like I read multiple books on how to do copywriting. I used to run a publishing company. I've read many books on sales psychology. Like it was on purpose with great effort made into something that was really nice and consumable and the concepts in it are actually very big and complex and there's a lot of academic research cited but the fact that you can read through it from beginning to end and have a pretty nice experience it's not too hard to read there's no long crazy weird sentences like that's the effort into the communications and so I just think everybody in the space has to just like sort of check themselves and not put out just really crappy stuff that just because it's complicated doesn't mean it's good like just because your paragraph is hard to understand actually makes it bad, doesn't make it good. And I think everyone really needs to put in the effort to um, refine what they do to make it feel nice to people. Yeah. No, thanks so much for saying that and adding that. Um, I've had a number of conversations on it that, you know, the reduction of, you know, the value of expertise is not necessarily, well, is directly related to the fact that the communication side of things isn't done well. And I agree. I think it's actually a, it's a talent and it's a skill set in itself that is so undervalued. Making something simple out of something that's super complex is definitely a skill set and talent. And we need more of it because otherwise we will end up with things that look great, but actually have aren't based on expertise or data or science or whatever. And people will listen to them and read them and do the thing that they said that they're told to do. We actually need more of, okay, well, this is friendly, accessible, whatever but actually it's based on real stuff, evidence, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, thank you for putting that into the world and thank you for your talents in this space. I appreciate it and I think everyone else does too. Okay, I can't believe the time. Um, I feel like we haven't been talking that long and I've had such a great conversation already. But anyway, we haven't finished yet. Let's go to the future. Can you tell us what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? Okay, 
I think one of the emerging trends that people aren't uh, talking about enough, especially in, well, anywhere in science or sustainability, is this the potential to get more granular data and to use it to compare different people to people, buildings to buildings, houses to houses. When you look through all of the behavioral science, one of the most powerful things you can do that drives people to take action is, you know, how you and I would compare to each other, saying you do 20% better or worse than that person. And a lot of the times the data that we get, we don't get data that's granular enough to compare people. You'll just get, for example, like the EPA has an air pollution sensor. They only really have one per city, right? So you can kind of compare city to city, but the reality of air pollution is every block to block is different. Even like three houses away, it can be quite different if one's on like a busy street and one's got some trees in front of it, right? So only recently there's been started to collect this um, more granular data with like cars that drive around and they capture like every single city street. And so when you've got that, you can actually send somebody a message or you could they could look it up on an app and be like, oh, your house is actually like 30% worse than... So another house like 20 meters away, right? And so that's the data-to-data comparison that is the magic key, I believe, in my hypothesis, that is the magic key to really driving this change when people can compare everybody to everybody else. It really gets people's goat that they need to do something. And if more people understood that, there'd be more investment in trying to get the granular data and not just get the data, but actually just communicate it, you know, that like trying to get everybody's, you know, email address and text message so they could actually like send them that little chart, you know, or sending it to the in the mail or making just sure everybody knows about it. And then it sort of drive, drives action. So, yeah, the relationship between collecting the data, which is a scientific job, and then the other half, which is communicating the comparison in a way that sort of gets people all sort of razzed up to take action and then measuring that action and being like, cool, we got like 20% of people to do the thing we wanted them to do. Yeah, and I think even just from a larger scale too, then they can go, well, this place looks exactly like this place. What are those smaller things that we're not thinking about that are actually changing the effects of air quality or whatever the case may be? So, yeah, it may look exactly the same from the outside, but actually there's something going on there that, that is a little bit different but you won't know until you see that data and then you can actually make, you can dive deeper in and go, oh, well, what can we do differently? And it's not necessarily the person living in that house, but actually it's the, the local government agency or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and you've got things happening, you know, the government needs to see it from everyone's point of view as a kind of a bird's eye thing. And then when the government can see the data, then they can start bringing in policies or programs to try and affect that. And they can also design things that You know, sometimes you really do need individual people to do stuff as well, like switching to electric vehicles. That's something that the government can sort of press on people, but ultimately it's the individuals that have to do it. So you've got this constant interplay between both. And also there's this like phrase like uh, Kaizen, this Japanese word that I mentioned in the book. Like when you've got data out there and you were talking about different people innovating on that, when you've got data, people can start innovating to try and change the data. They're like, okay, we tried this. Did it work? We tried that. Did it work? And coming up with, it encourages solutions-based thinking, innovation-based thinking, instead of just like, you know, outrage type of thinking, which, I mean, I'm not really that interested in, or people just not really doing anything or people not even knowing, like working on the wrong thing because they didn't get it right. You know, if they've always got the numbers, we can always be working in that causal mechanism and constantly innovating how to, how to shift that number. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Katie, it's been so great to chat with you. I feel like we could chat for a long time and we should definitely have another conversation. But for this interview, we'll wrap it up there. And uh, I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? 
Well, they can, uh, as I mentioned before, please do go onto the Chrome extension and download uh, Energy Lollipop and have a look at that. It's um, it's really interesting to watch for a few days. And you can go to energylollipop.com and sign up. And if you're interested in having it in Australia, you know, get in touch with me. We can build it for, you know, any grid. It doesn't have to be California. And my details are on my website, katiepatrick.com. I'm pretty active on Twitter at katiepatrick. And also I have more behavioral science type of environmental behavioral science tutorials on Instagram. It's katiepatrickhello is is my handle. Yeah, and just put your email address into my website. And so anything I do that's particularly exciting, well, I'll send an email out. Excellent. We will put all the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Thank you again for coming on to the Smart Community Podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. Talk soon. Bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.